Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Joto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for over 23 years. He's a charismatic senior director. He's a global technology and innovation evangelist. We all love evangelists. And we're talking to him today because he drives IBM's blockchain and identity-related solutions business strategy. His mission is to keep us secure. Coming to us live from Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill area in North Carolina, please welcome our disruptor, Jay Arun. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and excited to share my thoughts here with you about innovation and disruption and how we can think of us living in a more secure place as work, at home, or wherever we travel. Well, security is a big issue today. It's a big button. It's been a big button in everything from our identity to our elections to our finances to you name it. Before we really get into that, what is your main ingredient for innovative disruption? Yeah. So if I look at the disruption, why people have to come to innovation and disruption, it's the main ingredient is basically a problem that we need to solve for our business, our society, and anybody who lives in value to the society, community, and businesses is something that always driven by an intent and that intent can drive the innovation and that innovation can lead to a disruption. And that's what my thought is the main ingredient, which has to be a problem that's not solved in the past. And there's a significant impact happening to our business society and community. So you're one of the first disruptors that has really talked about the greatest good for the greatest number of areas or dynamics or thrusts that we live on in our society. I mean, like all encompassing. Many of our disruptors talk about one particular area and it's all very like for the greater good, but you're saying your main ingredient is like, let's look at all channels of where the most negative disruption is and how that's affecting our lives and our society that we live in. And what is the solution to help that? Absolutely. It's a pretty big goal, Jay. It is. No, I think that's one of the the area that we all live in this world. And I think where I don't know if you can go back to hundreds or thousands of years, the ancient history we have learned and heard that there were days that people did not have locks at their homes. So I think I'm talking about those living in that kind of trusted society, trusted environment, 
and trusted workplace. And I think, is that possible in today's days? How can that be possible? So I think that's the part we have to understand and, and see if we can do something with it. And I'd love to share my thoughts around it. Let's talk about that. Security does affect all of us globally in many different aspects. But, you know, in talking to you before, there's so many things going on that people don't even realize. And we have an ethical dilemma in this world right now. <laughs> it's too easy to get over on others. It has long-term effects. Before we get into how blockchain really helps with security, give me some real-world examples of what's happening with this security issue that there's no blockchain available to protect it. So if you look at the security problem across the globe. It's in, in everywhere. It's not just at the workplace, not just at my home or even the businesses that we work in, in general. When we talk about the security, you have to, I think, think and unfold that problem into what is really security is. It's primarily how we can make sure that if we all are accessing some information, accessing some asset, accessing something, it has to be right person with the right authority, with the right context. I think that's the idea with the purpose of the security, how, who should be getting what information and when and how. So that's the nutshell of what security should be. But as part of that, the problem we all have is either you talk about in today's environment, the systems that are protected by thousands of technologies or hundreds of products applied to secure those things is a concern because how we should not be looking at the way how systems are built, how the technologies or, or information is stored. The idea here is that security in nutshell is basically having the information, knowledge, people, processes, technologies, assets managed and secured in, in a manner that they are supposed to be, how they should be accessed, how they should be accessed by whom and who should be having the right say, authentication authorization to do those things. But currently it is not done with that way. And the challenge for that is because there are so many bad actors, uh, we know that within Inside, as well as outside, we talk about the hackers and things like that. There are security breaches happening, as you know, to our like oil pipelines, right? So we can be getting disrupted by those kind of things. And there's ransomware attacks. And you won't believe that these cost of breaches that happens to the enterprises and most of the critical infrastructure that we talk about could be billions of dollars, right, if we look at some in, in that regard. So I think how these challenges are pervasive, it's all the way, even you, you talked about early on the identity issues that we have. Identities are stolen. We name many of the major vendors, either banks or credit bureaus, or you can talk about any of the other, you can say, retail organizations where they keep individual, their customers' information, their business partner information, how that's being accessed, who is accessing them, and how they are stolen. So I think there are lots of challenges we can keep going on and on, but these are most in general from the business perspective. But I think there's a the bigger aspect of the, the challenges as we know we live in. The challenge is broader than that around the security 
goes into multiple other aspects that do you know who you are? So I think that goes back to the identity concept, right? So if there is a refugee who's trying to establish their identity in a new country, how that access is given, how that identity is given. So I think those kind of bigger and broader challenges we need to look at. And this all circles around with one thing I could say is trust. So trust is something that is if I have trust, maybe I do not have to have those many security requirements. If that trust is not there, yes, I need to make sure that my information, my people, my technology, my business, my home is protected. So, so those are the things that we need to look at holistically that this is a problem of trust. And today in the society where we live in, I do not think we have a trusted society. No, we don't have a trusted society. And these are high level things that people know about, but you have very specific real world examples of things that you've seen, things that you've worked on. I'd really like for you to paint the picture for our listeners because it's one thing to know about something. It's one thing to really know it and not just their own identity or their own financial welfare, but other aspects that we don't have that trust that are going on around the world. Can you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. So I think one of the other things, let's take an example of the global discussions and no matter even in the age of like recently, we all have gone through the pandemic. There has been so many questions from so many countries from trust perspective that have been raised, like where the things have come from, how we are not able to address these things holistically as one world or maybe as a human beings living on this trusted society or trusted environment, but that doesn't exist, right? We look at the wars, right? Those things are going when we, things like that. We look at the elections that happen in the countries. Those are the examples where the trust is not there. That's why we keep hearing all those kind of follow-up things. I do not agree that the elections were validated or elections are, you can say, verified and things like that. So I think these are the kind of other global kind of issues. But I think looking at other examples that very specific to human beings and in day-to-day uses. So for example, look at me, if I'm traveling somewhere at the airports, the TSA people or the other guys who would like to make sure from immigration perspective, they need an identity of me that could be a passport. If I'm driving a car, a police officer might need my identity as a driver's license. If I am going and applying for a loan, then a bank might need my financial history. If I'm applying for a job, I might need to provide my work history, right? If I'm buying a home, I think the same kind of things, right? For mortgage loan, I need to bring many of other attributes together. So I think one of the things that very specific example that in this case, identity is not owned by one of the organizations and and one of the organizations here, there are multiple entities who own parts and pieces of an individual's identity attributes, I would call. And given a particular transaction, either you are at the airport (laughs) getting the immigration or you are driving or you are getting a loan or you are applying for a job, different set of identity attributes are applied to make that transaction successful. And in this case, 
I think the challenge here is that we as an individual, I think who has the responsibility of that individual's identity? I think it should be the individual, not these multiple entities. Yes, they can verify, they can attest, they can provide the support for that attribute that, yes, I agree, this person holds this thing and I verify that. But who is the owner of that identity? And that's the biggest challenge that we all have to think. And in today's days, I don't think so you and I are ready that if my bank says, you own Jay, your identity, or you own Ms. Carla, your identity, you manage it. I don't have to do anything because I'm just managing the transactions. But then we are not ready for that stage yet. So that's the, the one of the bigger dilemma, the technologies, the environment, the systems do not support an individual to take care of their identity, manage that identity, uh, monitor that, and ensure who is accessing my information, where they are accessing my information, and what are they doing with my information. So that challenge, what we call, we have evolved from multiple cases. You remember that there were banks who were protecting our identities, our information, and not sharing with anyone. Eventually, they decided, oh, I'm a bank, but I do work with Credit Bureau or I work with some other third-party vendor for insurance company. I may be able to share with them. So they created the concept of taking that identity to federate that identity with some other vendors, right? And then we have the concept of now we can say the, the owner-led or basically the primary people like us, we can have some control over our identity. We can create our own profile on Facebook. We can create own profile on LinkedIn. So there's some opportunities given to individual to create their own identity from that perspective. So that's one step further. But the step that we are talking and discussing here is what we call self-sovereign identity, which means we should be in control of our identity and information. Yes, there will be various agencies and entities who can validate, verify, authenticate my identity attributes, but I should own it. And when my information is there, I should be able to share it, access it, and I think make it public or not public. It's my decision, not these entities who are determining and deciding who am I, what am I doing, right. where am I, what am I doing? So I think those are the very, very important thoughts that how we can think of this bigger problem we can solve. But this is just an example of our identities because it touches businesses, it touches individuals, it touches the part of our society and community. Yes. And the self-sovereign identity, if you own it, then you can decide who gets to see it, who are you going to share it with and so forth. I mean, there's certain, I guess, groups out there that say, well, if a person owns this, they could charge for that. That's a very interesting flip the tables. I mean, I'm thinking as we're talking of these particular schools of thought of what they're saying and charging for this. What if the police force, what if TSA, I mean, this is such a basic question, but they all had to then start to plan to budget to, well, I'm going to access this person's passport. I'm going to be given the opportunity. I'm going to have to pay them for that, whether it's a pennies on the dollar or something like that. What do you have to say about that? So I think that's the, one of the thought that monetizing onto your information, right? It's your personal information. And, you know, I think there are privacy laws as those have been created in many organizations, many countries, like you take, take an example of GDPR in Europe, right? 
PIPA in Canada, LGPD in Brazil. So I think some of those in California, we have the privacy law. So those things are emerging. They are protecting individuals, their information, how it should be accessed, how should it be shared. Those things are, I think, getting better. But to your point, it's my information. I should be able to determine who uses it. If someone uses it, is there a way to monetize on it? Because look at the credit bureaus. They are monetizing on my information, right? They are sharing it with the banks and charging $25 per transaction or things like that. So how can individuals be able to monetize? And I think that could be possible if we get into that stage where technologies and the information can support us, the ownership in a self-sovereign manner. So well, that would really upend a lot of industries. I mean... There's a lot of money and a lot of competition out there in the identity space. I mean, this would really upend that. I mean, just one aspect of it. Yes. What's the status quo as far as being able to do that now? I mean, I know that your team is working on things like this, but there's a lot of fixed ideas, false data, wrong focus on one aspect of blockchain that people don't, it's not really that important. Yeah, so, absolutely right. Status quo. So People really don't understand it. The biggest mm-hmm. misconception myth. What is it, Jay? As you know, I think I'm not sharing the deep, deep uh, details of the blockchain, but I think in simple terms, right? I'll give you an example why and where we are in this stage. So blockchain as a technology, it's honestly, I think it's not a rocket science. <laughs> so in terms of understanding, it's very basic principles. The things that we started this overall discussion today is about trust, right? We live in a distrusted environment. Participants do not trust each other who do business. And that's where these intermediaries are evolved. So for example, let's say we don't have an organization here now like Toys R Us or something like that, or a toys selling company in US. And there's a company in China who may be just toys manufacturer. And if these two entities need to do a business that if I buy $1 million toys, can this company in China deliver those to me? It's very simple. Peer-to-peer transactions should be taking place between two parties, but it doesn't happen this way. What happens in the first place is because these guys don't know each other. They don't trust each other. And what would happen is there would be a bank, advising bank at the Toys R Us side in US will say, I advise, if you guys deliver $1 million toys, I promise to pay that $1 million if Toys R Us does not pay. On the other hand, this guy say, how can I take the trust now, you and your bank? I need to have someone on my side. So there's an issuing bank on the US side, but then the advising bank on the China side will say, okay, I take, I'll deal with this bank if your money is not provided or given by this party, I'll make sure I will get this from this bank and I advise and trust that I'll be able to pay you. So these two banks have come into the picture, just these two. But imagine this supply chain between these two parties. There are freight forwarders, there are custom authorities, there are port authorities, there are warehouses, there are truck companies, there are shipping line carrier. Imagine there are so many participants in this just between these two people, right? Goods are coming from this party to this party and everyone has their own 
set of, uh, you can say, responsibility in this transaction. It's just one transaction. But what happens in that transaction, every time anybody is doing anything related to this transaction, they are managing their own ledger, own system, own application, the old-time ledgers that we used to have on paper that, okay, Mr. A took this much money from me and this date, and I got received this much money from this person. And then same thing, it's basically simple transaction. What transaction has taken place between party A and party B and party C? They keep their own logs, own ledgers, own records. And this creates a lot of inefficiency because think about just these two people. There are 100 other people in between these transactions. I just gave you an example of the process was letter of credit process. So in which these trust each other, these parties through the banks, but even the things are not all digital, not things like they are going through courier by mail. And instead of taking, it should be taking like an hour or a few minutes. It's taking several days in today's time as well. You might be wondering, oh, our banks are automated digital, but honestly, believe me, it's still happening that way. So those are some of the basic fundamental challenges that we all look into a simple two-people transaction or two-business transactions. There are 10 different other vendors in between or more than 10, and everyone is managing their own record, and that's bringing inefficiency. It's expensive because everyone is managing their own systems and ledgers. And then we talked about the security part because it's wondering where how one person is keeping my data because I don't know the particular warehouse or freight forwarder or shipping line carrier company, if they have information about my transaction, where they are keeping it, how open it is, how secure it is, I don't trust it. So that could be a vulnerable place as well for them. So I think all of those problems exist into the current environment. And you can apply that to a business and society or anywhere in a community that exists because we do all have these kind of disparate systems applications and our own things that we have been doing and then exchanging the information. And that is not really the right way to do it. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, you gave one example and then you talked about several others, but it's really on an exponential, like orders of magnitude scale. What can you talk about? What sort of solutions or cool things that you're working on? to resolve this factor and really bring blockchain into the mainstream? So I think just taking that an example and then see what is the solution for that. How blockchain can help in that that specific challenge is imagine those ledgers that we have individually managing their own systems, applications, and ledgers. Can that be turned into a share? replicated or maybe permission or private, it depends, but I think a distributed ledger. So blockchain in nutshell, it's a distributed ledger technology. What does it mean? So the example you and I have discussed a few minutes back is that imagine these two parties have just a distributed ledger. So they say, I want to buy $1 million toys. And then the other parties, yes, we may have to involve them. Like for example, Trade forwarders, shipping line carrier company, trucking companies, port authorities, they have to be involved. But what is their action? They take an action on that transaction and update that transaction in a distributed ledger. Same ledger, one transaction, 
whatever participant has authority, they just touch their part and update that on one common shared ledger. It's not like multiple ledgers. Everyone is sharing their own and creating their own, managing their own. So what it brings is exactly solving that bigger problem that we have because it brings trust in a manner because how the blockchain technology, not going but but to the layman's term, what the word blockchain means is every time a transaction happens, a block of information is added to the system and it's chained with the previous transaction and it is encrypted. Every time you write on to the system, it's encrypted and it's chained with the previous activity. So what happens is that you can see the trail record. So you can audit it well, what has happened in the past. And one other thing is, once you have written something on it, you cannot remove it. So it's immutable, right? So I think that's the other part of that. And there are ways that how we can think of blockchain implementation is basically, it's not just these two aspects, but how you can also enable some of these transactions based on the preset conditions. Based on the what? Preset conditions. So, like ah. people might say, the word you may have heard is called smart contracts, right? So, for right. example, Miss Carla would like to sell a car for $1,000. And if there is other person who can assure that they have $1,000 and they can pay, I think the transaction can automatically be executed without having any people involved. So, there would be, yes, legal contracts embedded into the transaction. Record. So as long as conditions meet, the transaction can automatically take place. That's the concept, what we call smart contracts. So that's the, the kind of capability that blockchain enables that not only bringing the trust, bringing the immutability, bringing the security, and I think the distributed ledger concept altogether can bring some of the trust and transparency into the systems. And it can solve, I think, many of the problems that we have talked about early on. An example in just this digital supply chain concept, if I would be using this on blockchain, I'm not saying as of today that every organization should chip and replace their existing ledgers and systems and applications. What we can do is using blockchain, you can make like an Uber ledger. Right? The concept of uh, Uber in terms of applying this uh, ledger technology. So it sits where you need to touch on to particular transaction, update that, make it trusted, transparent. I did my part. Here's the information about my updates. Same thing, all the participants can do it, but it could be faster. It could be less expensive. And also, I think time to get these transactions then would be way faster in, in that regard. So it solves many of the problems that we talked about, the inefficiency, expensive, and vulnerability all together into one solution. Yeah, it's a beautiful technology, and it's very disruptive, but very simple. And you're doing work with IBM on this. What are your projections for blockchain getting more integrated into our society? Where do you see this happening more often, and then how it's going to be adopted in other areas over the next five to 10 years? What do you think? So I would say, I think a couple of studies done, and I have participated in those studies and and shared our thoughts, like, for example, World Economic Forum, they do analyze some of these data points 
reach out to many of these subject matter experts like me and others in the industry. And then collectively, they have pulled together insights like they expect that blockchain, 10% of the global GDP would be stored on blockchains or blockchain-related technologies by 2025, which is, I think, only three years away, I would say. Ten, so okay, one. repeat that. That's a mic drop. <laughs> Give me that again. Yes. So World Economic Forum predicts is that 10% of global GDP will be stored on blockchain or blockchain-related technologies by 2025. That's a huge statement, right? It's a huge statement. 10% of the global GDP stored on blockchain or blockchain-related technologies by 2025. Yes. And we have been already seeing, I think, lots of uh, trends. I think just to support some of the things that you might have noticed lately. So I think what was that earlier this year we have seen from our president, right, was the date was March this year that there was an executive order announced that how do we ensure the responsible development of digital assets, right? That was purely based on digital assets, non-fungible tokens, the buzzwords you may have heard, right? The cryptocurrencies. So I think those are the things. So worldwide spending on blockchain has been, I think, estimated something around 6 billion by end of this year. And there has been, I, we know all Bitcoin prices have gone up anywhere, 40 to $60,000 range and things like those kind of things that we have seen. And then cross-border payments and settlements have been using the blockchain feverishly. So I think those are a few examples, but just to touch on to how and where we expect and a few more stats to share is that. There's other study that some of our industry analysts like Gartner, they have published that by 2025, U.S. or or in the global countries would have about $176 billion of the business value added by blockchain by 2025, which would be, I think then it would be surging and exceeding to 3.1 trillion by 2030. So I think some of those predictions, I think we are not saying that they would be, I'm very optimistic how things are because how blockchain is not, as we mentioned, it's not just a cryptocurrency business application. Thinking of blockchain as a distributed ledger technology, enabling the digital assets, digital assets transactions, non-fungible tokens, token-based economies, things like that that are evolving, like managing the loyalty programs using blockchain, expanding, like example, like Visa can expand all of their network instead of using plastic cards, they might use your own blockchain-based currency or loyalty points can replace things like that. So I think there are very, very specific examples. And that's why we see that banks are expecting to have at least, I think, few commercial applications, 66% of their commercial applications running on blockchain by end of this year, right? So I think some of those kind of examples, when we say commercial blockchain applications, like either you can call it the banking services we offer because behind the scene, they will be leveraging. I know one of the leading major vendors, I've been working with them over the last three years, one of the leading banks, they have 75 different use cases being explored using blockchain. So I think things like those kind of things, we must need to keep in mind how blockchain can be more pervasive. And just touching on some early on examples, I think you and I have discussed is elections, 
how can we use blockchain technology into creating the trust and transparency into the voting systems. I have a couple of my friends who have been exploring that, offering that as voting systems built on blockchain. Governments can accept mail, vote by mail. I think this system even further bolster the security, privacy, trust with the virtue of its capabilities it has, right? So I think there are many, many examples that we think it will make impact directly to our businesses as well as to our society in the examples like voting, examples of digital identity concepts that we discussed a few minutes back, and many others in general. Well, it's well on its way, isn't it? Those were some fantastic stats that you shared with us. Okay, how did you become such an evangelist for innovation? Have you always been forward thinking like little Jay? (laughs) right? Did you always look at how things could be and possibilities that people never even thought of? So I think one of the things I would be saying that it's my humble, I think, approach to look at the potential things, how and where we can solve some of the problems as we started, I think, for the business society and things like that. And the examples you won't believe I were using this technology, but the technology is just a means. But one specific example I'll give you is a country like Rwanda, where we have many of the educational system is not on par like we have in developed countries. And some of the specific schools who do not have enough funding for their students, what they have been doing were manipulating the system to get more money for their schools. So the government was really puzzled with that. What should we do in, in this regard? So I think we have been working with K-12 education system to bring all of the credentials on blockchain. So someone has made the right discussion, right decision, and those are recorded. You cannot fiddle with them. So And then that trust and transparency that can be brought into our systems, our society, I think, takes and goes long way. So to answer your question, I think my thought has been to really looking at the problems and, and I think what it could inspire for us to do something different, think forward, look forward, what could be the possibility that we can make something good for us as people we are living in this society, for our community and the places we work and our businesses. So I think that's my has been my primary thought and that has been inspiring for me to think differently, do something differently and analyze things differently and help contribute my knowledge and, and insights to to others. Yes, that's beautiful. Were you always like that when you were little? <laughs> Did you always look at something <laughs> and say? <laughs> Not really. I think, yeah, some things you might have, some people have that curiosity from the daytime and early on in, in their life. But I think it has been evolved from my, I would say, my middle school days to the high school. And I have always determined that I want to be an engineer initially. And then what I would like to do after engineering and do something that could help all of us. I think that has been the intent from early days and and my learning and I think my early career days as well. So I think that inspired me, kept inspiring me what I do today and what I would like to do in future as well. So I think that has come from Sometimes, but I think the other problems, I would say it, it also comes from your environment where you live in or where you have been growing up, what kind of things you have seen. Some people may have lived into that kind of protected and always 
I think you can say environment that may be more conducive for them, but some people who may not have that liberty to really go through some of the hurdles and problems and, and understanding them is other part. So I have, I think I must say, I have seen all of those different phases of different sides of the world that people, how they are living, what difficulties they are having or facing, and then how we have evolved through them and come up. So I think I can relate to some of the primary challenges to solve them and think differently, do things differently. And that has always been inspiring for me to a step beyond, which I think sometimes I see some other people may not see, <laughs> but that has <laughs> right. been fortunate for me, I should say. That has been fortunate. Well, you've definitely grown up and come into the right era. The right era is disruption and people are really looking at things differently. And I think you have to, when you're dealing with blockchain, you have to look at those possibilities. There's no other way. You can't look at things the same anymore. Absolutely. Jay, what do you do in your own time? Like what sort of passions do you have? Do you have any crazy hobby? What do you do? <laughs> so I think I, as I mentioned, I think being inquisitive of, of these or, or basically curious about things. So I read a lot about the new things that are happening across the globe. I don't just read about the technology, but even things happening across the globe, what kind of problems we are seeing and is there anyway. So I'm majority of my time is, I think, goes into that part. But at the same time, I think I do have a family, so I enjoy time in the weekends and things like that with my family as well. But one desire always to do something different, share the knowledge, and bring the knowledge in, into the context. That has been one of my, you can say, priorities, or maybe you can call it as my hobby in general that has been. So uh, so I do that part. And I think that's the one of the area that when I was talking to you about hundreds or so CISOs or CIOs or other folks uh, early on about this technology or about just this example. And we have been hearing same kind of concerns and challenges again and again from them. And they were saying, I don't understand. I heard blockchain is Bitcoin or Bitcoin is blockchain. And what is different? I don't understand. So we have A common misnomer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we thought, I think that would be a good idea to help our customers, our business leaders and friends in general to help them what the technology can do magic for them, right? You asked earlier what things it can do. I think there are examples like can we have decentralized exchanges? Can we have these zero knowledge proof technologies? Can we have, I think, all the other things you are hearing, decentralized identities, decentralized financing, uh, tokenization technologies, right? Non-fungible tokens. All those things are emerging and they are, I think, so inspiring. And I'm sure that one day you and I will have applications and that could be running on the backbone of blockchain. And I'm, I'm sure about that because how this technology is pervasive is it's really bringing that transparency and we are not able to use that effectively today for many reasons because of the government influence or we do not have the right compliance and regulations to put in place because we want to make sure the technology is built right, implemented right and used for the right reasons. So I think those things are done with right regulation compliance and once those things will be there, I think we will see a lot more adoption of this technology but I'm always inspired to contribute to the team and that's what I do in my <laughs> spare time and, and whatever time spent or left I spend that time with my family. 
That's awesome. So how can people get a hold of you? They have questions about blockchain. I know that you work with CISOs and CIOs and explaining this and so forth, but how can people get a hold of you and get more data? I think best thing is reach out to me on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or wherever you find me because I'm available on all those open channels. I'm open and I think my LinkedIn is open. I'm an open networker. So if you have any questions, it's not like close. You can only follow me. You can reach out to me. That's one of the other reasons I kept it open because people can have questions and I have been reached out by different parts of the world and asking specific questions and I've been able to help them. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or other places that you find other social networks and see I'm there, most of them and major majority of them are there. And I would love to help you or connect with anyone whoever needs any more insights and knowledge. And my intent, as I shared, I love to share the knowledge and learn from all of you. That's awesome, Jay. Thank you so much. I think this has probably been one of the more enlightening conversations I've had on blockchain, and I've had several. I always learn something, but this really takes it to a whole new level, and it's a train that we can't stop. And it's one thing that I love because in a digital age, there is this aspect of the trust factor, the security factor, and that being a suppression to people's ability to expand. And this particular technology is something that has been created and it's being pushed that really handles that to make the world a better place. So thank you so much for sharing that data. You are very welcome. I'm glad to be here on your podcast and I love to hear more from the people who reach out to me. And, and thank you again. It was a pleasure to speak with you. You bet. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from the show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.